You're listening to the Makeup Podcast, a truly global portrait of the art of life. I'm on another level. This fire that I speak got me wrestling and down. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. This fire that I speak got me wrestling and down. But it's so important to repeat what we've gone through because it, it, it gets forgotten. Okay. And that's what's happening with the black history. It's getting forgotten or it's getting completely put up by somebody else documenting it and then they get their version of it, which is completely not true. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. This fire that I speak got me wrestling and down. It is June 14, 2020, and our guest is Dr. Sabine Fonderson. Welcome to the Maker Podcast, Dr. Fonderson. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's lovely to have you, and it's 9 o'clock at night, just for those of you who might not be in the same time zone. So this is a courageous and generous act on the part of Dr. Fonderson. These are difficult days, and we appreciate this. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate being asked to do this. I think it's important. So finding the time uh, is just as a priority for me to have this kind of topics talks about. So I'm really happy to be here. Okay, we appreciate that. We're going to take a, a deep dive because the listeners might not know about you and we hope already to have you back. So we're going to set the groundwork for that by you telling us a little bit about your background, where you were born and raised and where you studied medicine. Uh, well, thank you, listeners. Um, I uh, was born in the uh, in, in Africa, in Western Africa, called country called Cameroon. Uh, it's just under Nigeria, and I was pretty young when I left. Um, went to move uh, with my parents, obviously, to the UK. Uh, we lived there for a number of years, and then we moved to the Netherlands. Uh, lived there for a number of years, and then uh, at a certain point, they decided to move to the states and. I stayed in the Netherlands and finished my medical studies. So I graduated in 2006 and uh, went to live with my parents in the States also for a while, but then uh, came back. Uh, there's always been something about Europe uh, that I appreciated, I think, a bit more. Um, and then moved kind of around, uh, traveled in different countries. I lived in London for a while, worked there. And then uh, lived in Scotland also for a couple of years, and then uh, moved back to the Netherlands in 2017. So I've been here now for the last uh, three years. Wow, that's a lot of movement. That's a lot of movement. (laughs) And what is your specialty? What would you say? Well, I've done the most uh, experience in in healthcare is in uh, the emergency department. So I've worked for over seven years um, in the emergency uh, aid, uh, first aid. Um, accidents and emergencies Um, and then I did a second master's in pediatrics emergency medicine Um, initially I wanted to be a pediatrician but unfortunately that didn't go as I thought would go Um, and then I decided to get into emergency medicine because I really liked the fact that it was very um, quick you can you can handle care quickly manage people who are very ill and then ship them off to another department for somebody else to take care of uh, and it was exciting, it was dynamic, it was uh, it, 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 extremely involved, even if it was for a very short time. And then uh, I did it for, for, for many years, I really enjoyed it, but uh, as I grew older, I had a child, it kind of became quite incompatible with my social life and my life as a mother. 
so I, I needed to think about switching uh, careers uh, within the medical field. So I went and did, um, uh, I, I worked as a child child care developmental officer. I, I don't know exactly how you translate that in English, but basically make sure that children who are born for the first four years are healthy. So you do checkups. Huh? Okay. And so it's very much preventative care. Is that part of public health? You get vaccinations and uh, watch how they grow and how they develop. And I did it for a year and I didn't really find it that exciting because a lot of the kids were just, you know, healthy, which is great, you know, but I, will, I want to, I'm in the business of caring for people. Um, so I switched and I'm now uh, training to become a general practitioner and um, I'm also doing a PhD. So <laughs> it's quite a combination. That's, that's heavy. That's a lot of work. You just seems like you never stop. Do you have some sort of over, overall arching plan? Where does this where does this end? Is there a goal, or are you looking for something specific? That's a good question. I think um, a lot of things happen in my life, you know, pro- professionally and uh, personally, and I think a lot of it, what I'm doing, is driven by the uh, our experiences, our past experiences, kind of drive us, mold us. Um, so the overarching goal is that um, yeah, I want to be a general practitioner. I want to have my own practice. But I also want to do it a bit differently than the way it's done now. Okay. Um, so, and I'll talk a little bit about that with my platform that I'm setting up. And why uh, a PhD? It's because when I was uh, doing my master's in Scotland, um, it was a, ma- a four-year master's, and it was all about children attending emergency medicine and um, emergency care. Sorry. I was like, I-, I just loved it. I loved everything that had to do with, you know, understanding why children go into the A&E, how to talk to parents, how to give them guidance. And I think I kind of got stuck into that whole, I want to know more. Uh, I was always looking for more uh, reasons as to, okay, how do I do this better? So when I got into the training uh, for general practice, I searched um, if there was an opening for a PhD, and there was, and it was in children. So I felt, you know, this is it. If I don't do it now, I don't think I ever will. Right. So it kind of just, I actually look, I actually looked for this. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, but I think because I keep on asking the questions and I'm always looking for answers, I think that's what motivates me. And uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I'm actually at the office doing my research now as we speak. At nine o'clock and at night on a Sunday. On a Sunday. And it was funny because I had just created a graph and then one of my, my professors asked me, he, he's, he said, this is really interesting. Why is that? I thought, oh yeah, I'm gonna dive into the, into the numbers. So I'm, I'm, you know, looking at my, uh, you know, my Excel sheets, and I'm going through my SPSS, which is like a statistic programming language, and then I'm going to the answers, and I'm thinking, oh, now I can explain why this is, you know, the way it is, and it's just interesting to be able to put numbers and to take numbers and make a story out of it, and I like doing that, like taking numbers and creating this tale and you know, explaining things. That's really beautiful because it, it's you found your passion and it just seems to have taken hold of you and it's it's guiding you exactly where you want to go. It's just all yeah. falling into place. But it's a, it's falling into place, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot of hard work. And you, and you know, I have to I have to say this backstory for the listeners. They don't know this, but you and I met a year ago, and we had a brief conversation about what you're trying to do with your career. And we also had a conversation about mental health care in the African diaspora. But before we go there, I want to go back and have you carefully explain Hello Doc. (laughs) Carefully. Yeah, because it's it's big and I want it to be, I use the word carefully because it's more complex than it looks. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, I think uh, in a nutshell, really, at the moment, HelloDoc is offering a temporary solution to expats and international students living in The Hague who don't have a GP, a general practitioner, or high arts. And uh, so we've just basically come in there and, and, and help you get a high arts. Uh, so we will, will assist you in registration. But most importantly, especially a lot of expats coming in uh, to the Netherlands, it can take up to three months before they find a GP. And in that time, they might need medication, uh, they might need assistance, they might need, you know, just some advice on what to do. And that's that's what we do. So in a nutshell, we're offering a temporary medical solution and we do it online, which is really cool. Okay. And is it only available in the Netherlands or is it global? No, we are only available in the Netherlands. Uh, I mean, I started HelloDoc um, yeah, about two years ago on my own and... Um, and it was it's it was fun. I mean, I I was having a great time building the website. Uh, you know, attending workshops in the evenings or on the weekends to talk about mental health issues, to talk about healthcare in the Netherlands. So I use that platform as a way to just let people know that you can contact me on a very low threshold uh, manner. And um, at the moment, uh, I'm running a team of about twelve. So it's kind of exploded in the last couple of months, uh, which is fine because I don't really because uh, it's online. Uh, I think one of the best things about what I've done, even if I look at the experience of my research and experience I've had working in the emergency department, I know how to quickly get things done. Okay. So um, I have a team that really are, are great in implementing some of the things I tell them to do or ask them to do. And, uh, and it's about empowering them to really do what they love doing uh, so that they can get the work done, right? Right, right. Um, so, but it's it's been a really interesting journey and it's still, it's still growing. We've partnered with some amazing companies and yeah everybody has roles to play so i get to sit back and relax sometimes very very interesting is is it replicable it is absolutely 100 percent. i think uh that's what i like about it um one of the reasons why i'm doing it now is because as i'm as i'm training to become a general practitioner i'm also realizing that a lot of the things that we do uh in the general practice can actually be done online and I've been saying this for like many years. I've been I've been giving advice online for, for many years. So it's, it wasn't the first time I did this. And I've been saying this to my colleagues. And they're like, oh, no, it's, it can never be done. You have to see the client. You have to see the patient, which I agree. You have to see the patient at one point, but not all the time. Okay. <laughs> and I think we can facilitate that because people are on the go. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things that we can talk about online. And, and by because we do online, we do always video consultations. You know, you get you get a lot of information, and you give them time. So when we do consultation, you're doing 20 minutes. So it is rep, uh, rep, replicable. Okay. And we're hoping uh, once this is really well established here in the Netherlands, that we take it to Africa. And I'm actually talking to, to some potential partners about starting something there. Nice. You know, um, it's interesting because you we said replicable, and you are thinking about Africa, but you lived in the states as well, and you know the healthcare system there could also use HelloDoc, believe it or not. Oh, but they have they have amazing stuff. They don't need HelloDoc there. Uh, <laughs> they have uh, they've got uh, Tap uh, TapaDoc. They've got HealthTap. They've got uh, oh, they've got like five six different huge. Um, platforms where they can get access to doctors online anytime, every day. Um, so it's a very, it's, a, it's it's extremely well done. And now there's even a, a new um, uh, online uh, service that's going to be huge. Um, it's going to, it's called COVID MD. So you can actually contact a doctor during, you know, this Corona crisis to get yeah. a lot of information 
and uh, access to to other services. So America, it's just saturated. The the landscape is already uh, filled. Um, it might it might mean that Hello Dog will have to offer something different, which I'm always you know happy to take a look at. Yeah. I like the challenge, um, but I don't think I want to actually you know go to the states with this at the moment. Sure, sure. Of, of course, for you, it makes more more sense to focus on Africa because of your the background in terms of what you know about the cultures. Yeah. That makes exactly. sense. I guess I'm thinking of it because um, being from the States, I know how the healthcare system leaves a lot of people out. I understand exactly. that most people don't have health coverage and there have yeah. got to be as many ways as possible to cover that. Yeah. But you, you brought us right to the, to the COVID question. If we were to talk about what you think some of the long-term mental and physical complications are going to be from COVID-19, what could you tell us at this time? Yeah. Okay, so I, I remember around February or March, I had a con- I was asked also to do a uh, like a podcast. Um, it was live stream on, on a radio with uh, also an African, um, um, well, from, for for the African community, let's say. Right. And you know, we were, I, I was asked about okay, what do what do you think about this Corona? And you know, with all the information then that we were bombarded with every single hour. You know, I kind of said, look, these are the symptoms and uh, this is what you should look out for. And if you have this, 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 go and see a doctor, right? Right. And now we're about two and a half, three months further. And I'm like, I have no idea what to say to people actually anymore. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know that much about Corona, unfortunately. It would be, it's, um, it, there's been a lot of, um, you know, suggestions that, you know, it causes X, Y, Z. So I'll just start with the basics. So when it started, you had, if you had fever, cough, and shortness of breath, then you typically have corona. Okay, so about 60% of the time, 70% of the time, that's the case. But there's a small, there's a minority of people, and now a significant proportion of people, if you now compare it with the global um, cases, that don't have symptoms and they have corona. There mm-hmm. are people that I've seen as a doctor myself who I think, oh my goodness, this person definitely has corona. You go there in gear, in full gear, and you send him to the hospital, you're like, yeah, this guy, definitely corona. And then a week later, nah, it wasn't that. And you're thinking, wait a second. And then another person with absolutely no symptoms, you're like, nah, it can't be corona. That's, that's nothing. And then I don't go in gear because I don't suspect it. Right. And then a week later, yeah, the guy was positive. I'm like, I'm confused. So mm. and I think it's cases like this which makes it quite um, scary now yeah. for me, actually, as a doctor. Yeah. It's cases like this that makes it quite um, uh, um, uncertain, not only for me, but for my other health professionals, my, my colleagues, because now you're just like, what do we do? Do we go and see everybody in gear, in protective gear? And then you're thinking about the lack of gear, the lack of uh, personal protection equipment, right. and, you, and, and you have to be resourceful. So that has already created quite a, an, an anxiety um, in, in me as a, as a doctor, because now even going out and now with the... Um, the relaxation of some of these uh, conditions. Like right. now we can go uh, into public places like restaurants. We can go now to cinemas, obviously with limited amount of people. Um, and then I'm thinking, but who says that it's okay? And why can't we then wear some protection even when we're doing this? So it's caused me quite a lot of uh, insecurities. Um, I, I find it conflicting sometimes to tell uh, patients what to do because I don't think we actually know what to do uh the only thing i say is that look if you have fever cough and you're not ill if you're ill sorry you're not feeling better stay home and that's just it so when you talk about the what i think covid does in the long term 
I think it's going to cause a lot of uncertainty. It's already causing a lot of uncertainty. It's causing anxiety. That in itself is playing on people's mental health. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Sure. But physically, what I've seen is the people who have had COVID and who have been hospitalized, these are people who are really sick. The ones that end up in IC typically stay there for about two to four or five weeks. And that's long. Any IC admission for that length of time is not good for you. And it's not, not we'll talk about the mental health part of it, but the physical side of it is definitely not good because when they get out, they need rehabilitation. Mm. They need to go to physiotherapy. Their muscles have um, wasted. They've lost weight. Um, I mean, uh, the, the side effects of the medication are still uh, uh, in them. So the physical, um, you know, complications of having developed COVID to the level where you're hospitalized, I think it's going to be many, many years. And we don't even know, but I think it's going to mm. be a long time before people actually say they recover. Okay. And what I have seen also is from direct uh, friends of mine, who have had uh, the condition, I've actually, um, uh, you know, I, I saw them when they're really sick, really worried about their, their health, and then they recovered. But I can, I, I see that it's taken a huge toll on their physique. It's like they've aged, you know, within weeks. Uh, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's actually an incredible uh, uh, sickness, and I really hope that people take this thing extremely seriously because um, even when I go out, and I, and I don't go out unless I have to, um, I'm taking it extremely seriously. So um, even it's um, June 14th, and I know the Netherlands has opened up a lot. In my in my town, for example, the cafes are full again. People are really, yeah. they're back out there. Yeah. So I guess I would say, you probably can't answer this, but are you in the camp that would think that there would be a, a second wave, like a, a new group of, of people who are in, infected by this? Or you just, you don't know at this point? Well, I'm in the camp that says not only will there be a second wave, but you have to brace yourself for even worse outcomes. Because if a second wave comes just off the back of that first wave, because we still haven't yet recovered, huh? we still haven't yet recovered financially, haven't recovered um, physically, mentally, and not to talk about the physical, you know, the, the uh, personal protection equipment, we haven't restored that supply or that gap. If a second wave comes, I mean, it's it's going to be disastrous. It's going to be Ten times worse than it is now, um, and and that's why I say I was actually yesterday uh, I drove to Nijmegen to, to to visit a client of mine from, and uh, and on the and when I got there I, a friend of mine said oh you know if you if you Nijmegen is such a nice city why don't you just walk around and I was in my car and I and I was looking for the center so I tapped in my Google Maps and I'm driving and I remember just getting to a stoplight and looking up like a little hill mm-hmm. and I saw the crowd like out. I saw, I, and I just turned around. I'm like, I am not walking in that crowd in this heat where everybody's just, you know, so close together. Yeah. And I, it just, it just, I, I felt like, I, is it just me? Or have we just forgotten what's happened the last couple, you know, weeks? Um, so I'm really perplexed, to be honest, at these yeah. uh, relaxation of the rules to this extent where people uh, think that it's over. And I think that's a mixed messages that people are getting. And if within now and let's say a month, the government goes back to lockdown. I can tell you, it's going to play a huge uh, role on people's mental state because they're going to be—they're already in a state of anxiety, and now you're going to go back to that other state where they haven't dealt with it. I mean, it, it, I, I don't even—I don't even know what to say. I—I I, I hope not, but I'm definitely in the camp of that. It's going to be a second wave and even worse outcomes. Okay. Okay. Um, that is. And I'm not—I'm not—I'm not, a, I'm not a, a virologist. I'm not a 
infection disease doctor i don't work for you know anybody you know apart right. from being a gp so right. i can be completely wrong right. and i don't know all the figures by heart right. but just looking and you know doing you know research and you know I, i've studied uh, clinical epidemiology and we, we look at data right? we, we look at the way uh, uh viruses right. affect people right um we're now dealing with a virus that we haven't yet gone you know gotten under control right and we still don't know what it's like and yet we're still going out about i am pretty frightened to be honest you know um i know you're looking at the the, the scientific data i understand that and here's here's the tricky part though and it's is delicate to talk about but it's obvious that we have to there are a multitude of people in the streets now because of the the Floyd execution. Yeah. So that brings us to the mental health in the African diaspora. It brings us to the the concept that people were so tired of being pent up. They'd lost their jobs. They were already on the edge. And then this, uh, it's a human rights violation, let's call it what it Absolutely. is, occurs. And the whole world went into the street exactly where they were advised not to go because they felt the need to do it. Can't argue with that. What what can you tell us about just mental health care in the African diaspora before the Floyd execution, before COVID, and now? It's yeah. That's what we need to talk about, if we can. Yeah, I mean, um, so mental health in the African diaspora is something that I think, and this is one of the things that I actually, you know, when we met, uh, we, yes. we had this conversation. Yes. It's something that I know is very much um, like a hidden topic. It's not even discussed. Um, it's, it's something that I think also a lot of African diaspora themselves, they don't um, realize that they're having mental health issues. They, they, and when you speak to them uh, as a doctor, and I, I think this is where my role comes in pretty well, and I, and I love the fact I get to do this, is when I speak to somebody from African descent uh, in a GP practice, I can relate and translate some of the things, the symptoms that they're trying to tell me. And I know how to word it and say, okay, but how are you in your mind? You know, right. how are you in that space? You know, right now, not physically, but just in yourself. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, a, a gate opens up, and they start telling me things which I can now relate to stress, to fatigue, um, to, uh, for example, depression in the sense of losing a loved one. You know, uh, going through grieving, even the way that they uh, communicate about grief. It's very much like, oh, I have a headache, you know, but when you dig deeper, you're like, yeah, but you just lost your mother four months ago. You haven't dealt with it. You right. know? Yeah. So it's very interesting that um, African diasporas themselves, either they haven't been taught as children. And I know from my experience, uh, unfortunately, growing up, I really wasn't taught uh, to express emotions. I was taught to just express, I have good grades <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've done really well in maths. And, uh, oh, yeah, that was it. So emotion growing up and actually expressing emotions was not something that I learned to do. So when I'm growing up now and I'm, I'm dealing in my, in my work group, in my, with my peers and my colleagues, and we're talking about emotions, and they start asking me, well, Sabine, how does that make you feel? I'm like, well, what do you mean feelings? Feelings of what? I just know that I have to have actions. I have to do things, you know? Right. Let's get on. Right. So, um, so before uh, the, uh, uh, Floyd, we already had issues on talking about how we felt, okay? Sure. We already had issues about talking about what it was like to be suppressed, what it was like to be discriminated, because we were, nobody ever asked us how we felt about it. Um, and we, even if we wanted to talk about it, there was really no outlet. Where are you going to talk about it? You can go to you know one or two shows and speak about being discriminated against, and that's about it. And then it will become, oh, yeah, it's happened, and then we move on. 
Sure. So it's never, uh, there was never that, um, let's say that uh, continuous, uh, let's discuss it. And I don't want to compare to other, uh, let's say, uh, races or ethnic minorities that have been, um, you know, wiped out. Or if I'm just t- talking about, you know, what, for example, Hitler did with the Jews. If you look at them, how they how they dealt with their histories by keep on talking about it. They've been allowed to write books. They've been allowed to uh, to make movies. They've been allowed to uh, talk about it in, in class, and in, in so that children who never had anything to do with it are, are taught about it, and they get to talk about it moving forward. So their history doesn't die there; mm-hmm. it lives, and so that people can find ways to deal with it, to grieve, because part of grieving is to talk about what you've gone through. Now, if you look at Black history, there's not that. Eh? Look at the history that we taught. Look at the way that books. Uh, the kind of books that are published, the way the movies are being uh, are being made, doesn't really talk about the inherent suffering that is caused in our minds, in our families, in our children, in our grandparents. It doesn't. Now we fast forward and we finally have social media. We finally have things on footage. And I have to say that th- this very sad tragedy with uh, George Floyd is not the first one. There has been before. Um, you know things like this happening, yes. but I think maybe at this at this point in time, enough is enough. Uh, kind of mentality. So we have this um, very vivid, um, you know, killing of an African American person by a police officer. And yes, now it's time for everybody to just boom, let out the emotions, right? Yeah, which is a good. So it's uh, catharsis is very good. Unfortunately, there's a dilemma. We are also in a in a crisis where is it the time to speak? But who, who is going to say don't speak? Because we've already been, you know, our mouths have already been held um, closed tightly. So I think it's really important that people realize that you can never pinpoint a time to let your emotions out. When, it, when it's coming out, it has to come out. And it's better to do it then than to wait because it might be even worse, you know, in the future. Now, fast forward to where we are now with COVID. And yes, unfortunately, there was another tragedy where Rayshard Brooks was killed and shot by uh, police officers. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, what the hell? <laughs> now, uh, you know, uh, more demonstrations going on. It, they have to talk about it. But how can we make it in a way that's peaceful and where we are telling our story, but in a way that's very much more um, in line with the guidelines? And I think that's what we need to focus on now. You have a story to tell. You have your emotions to let out. But please do it in a way that is concise with what we're trying to do in terms of making people safe. Because unfortunately, just from last week, we already have a rise in about eight states in America in cases. Um, I think one state had already maximized on their IC um, admissions. So there's a direct, you know, cause and effect. And I think we just need to realize that it's not a right timing. There never is going to be a perfect timing for these things. But we can do it in a way that keeps us safe. And that's what we're missing right now. And that's where, again, mental health issues are going to come back because people are going to be scared now. You know, part of having, you know, anxiety is blame. People are going to start blaming themselves. Oh, should I have done this? Mm. What if I had just stayed home? Maybe my mother or my grandmother would not be ill and in IC at the moment. And that's not good because you're pressing again what you're supposed to be feeling, which is this underlining, uh, you know, um, um, topic of racism. And, um, and systematic uh, racism. You, you know, um, you touched on a lot of things, but two things that stick out are the the impact of systemic racism on anxiety and stress within the African diaspora. I've read a few studies about it, but I imagine that you would be able to give us maybe some 
some clarity around it. It's a real thing, but I think that some people don't make the connection. They don't see the correlation. Very and true, very true. It, it is. Um, I think I will, I will say, I, I will talk about me, right? Because okay. I, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, even in the Netherlands, I remember just last week, I was, uh, I, I was speaking to a colleague of mine, she's Dutch, uh, she's white. And uh, she, she was like, yeah, what do you think about the, the rights or the demonstration, not the rights, the demonstration, the peaceful protest, I'd say, in the Netherlands. I said, well, I think it's fantastic. I, for my own personal reasons, I don't attend them. First of all, I didn't have time, let me not lie. Uh, but I still feel like because I'm working in the front line, I don't want to put myself at risk uh, to get uh, her the, 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 this uh, condition. And I said, but I think it's definitely necessary because the Netherlands, there is an there's such an undertone of discrimination and that's definitely not picked up. It's there. She's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, remember when I said I wanted to be a pediatrician? So many years ago when I applied, uh, we didn't have social media the way we do now, right? Okay. So you applied, you wrote a letter, uh, you typed it out, printed it, you put it in the envelope, you licked it, for the, you know, you, you sealed it with a stamp, and you sent it off. Okay. And I sent my CV to, I think, about eight different hospitals around the, around the Netherlands. And I got invited to every single one of them because my CV was good. I had done, um, I'd done my studies, but I also done a lot of voluntary work. And I, I went to Africa and I went and did all these projects. So I had a really nice CV. I was pretty proud of it. So when I was giving, giving, getting that confirmation, like, hey, come, we want to interview you. I thought, this is great. Right. And uh, I came to the interviews and on a few occasions, they would say uh, Sabine Fonderson and I would stand up. And then they were like, no, we're looking for Sabine Fonderson. And I'm like, uh, but that, that is me. And then they're like, oh, okay. So, so then I would get into the interview and it would just switch. Like you, and, I, and I had this moment where the interviewer was the, you know, the, uh, the trainer. And he just sat the whole time like this. With his arms crossed. With his arms crossed. And I felt the, the, the total, you know, like I felt I shouldn't be here. Like it was very clear they didn't want me there. So then one day... I'm getting all, I'm, get, I'm sending CVs left and right, and I'm getting invited, but I never get a chance to actually get the job, because they tell me your CVs, wait, remember, back in the days, there was, uh, there was also emails you could send, and then they would always look at my CV and say, your CV's great, we would love to have you for the interview, blah, 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 okay. and then I never got the job, so one day, I just asked, I'm like, okay, look, can I just ask a question, just, you know, tell me the truth, why aren't I getting this job? And I got this story told that, yeah, you know what? When we read your name, right, we see your CV is great, but we see your name, Sabine Fonderson, we think that you're a blonde Swedish woman. And then when you come to the interview, we just realize, oh, okay. And then he said, literally, you just don't fit uh, our profile. You're too ethnic. So this builds a sense of anxiety in me for very many years. Because every time since then I send a CV out, I'm always thinking, am I good enough? What else do I need to do? But then, well, then I realized that things started to change because now social media came about and I'm pretty active on social media. If you tell every name, you'll see me on LinkedIn, Facebook, I'm everywhere, my face is everywhere. And it, it hit me because I will still send, I still have the same CV, even better now because I went and worked other places. And now this time I was not getting calls for interviews because they could now Google my name and they're like, oh no. So I was completely profiled before, just, just on, my, on, on, my, uh, on the way I looked. And so this has already caused me a lot of um, pain. And I've never really talked about it to this level because I'm even actually getting quite emotional <laughs> now saying it. Mm -hmm. But it's caused a lot of yeah. anxiety because I'm always thinking, 
okay, when I actually do get this interview, is it because they really think I'm good now or, or what? I never really know. Um, is it because I'm like the last person or I'm the only person? Has there uh, so many people fallen out of this uh, uh, vacancy? So in my own professional life, I'm always you know, thinking, but I, I've had to get over it because I say to myself, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm good at it and, right. I, and I want to grow. But just imagine what it now does. And I'm, I'm in the medical profession where relatively speaking, it's still like, easy for me to get a job because they're always going to be looking for doctors or whatever. But imagine somebody who hasn't had this kind of education and who's always trying to apply themselves and they're always getting rejected. Can you imagine what it does to their state of mind, to their confidence, to, to the, the, their ambition, their goals? It, it feels like it's just ruined, right? Yeah. So next to that, you can't get a job. Next yeah. to that, you can't live. So you're not, you're, you're, you become financially... Uh, dependent on something or the, or the government or whatever. Yes. But nobody looks and says, why is that person actually getting, you know, um, benefit? They don't go and say, think, oh, maybe he has tried or she has tried, but she's been rejected based on her color or her ethnic origins. And, and, and then that causes anxiety. So you're always saying to yourself, you're not good enough. Um, this, is a, this is part of the racism. This is part of the discrimination. I was speaking to a friend of mine. He and I worked together uh, on Hell Dog. He's a great guy. And uh, he's from Afghanistan, but he's lived in the Netherlands for many years. I think he came here when he was like in his teenage. And he is very ambitious. I mean, when you look at him, you know he's going to go places. And he said to me, to be where I work, um, I look at the department and I see, you know, the pictures of all the professors and all the, you know, all the heads of the department. They're all on top. And my picture's all the way down mm-hmm. at that bottom. And he says, that for me says something. And it does. You know, it's there and people need to talk about it because it's not there. This is what I'm talking about. I don't have to imagine it. I know exactly what you're talking about, but this is not the Mona show. So I will talk about that some other time. I'll, I'll, I'll interview you next time. 100%, yeah. 100%. <laughs> so um, here's the thing. What year was it that you were applying to for the pediatrician position? What year is that? This is in the year when I graduated, 2006. This is around 2006. Okay. Yeah. And the- there was no Facebook, there was no LinkedIn. Uh, it was all by mail. Again, people were just getting used to the emails and things like that. Right. Uh, and there was no nothing about send a picture, nothing. So it was just my CV, and and that's it. And and I mean, like I said, it doesn't make sense because I still have the proof, right? I've always saved all my emails. All of them always were exciting. Like you, your CV is great. Come. We can't wait to see you. I would show up there. People would be like, "Are you uh, the person that we invited?" <laughs> But they're, they're, they're bold about it. That's the thing that um, it's shocking, yet it's not to have them sit back, look at you and say, well, you're, you're too ethnic. You, you don't fit yeah. in. Just come out and say it. I think that the, the conversation in the Netherlands has been opened up by this uh, Floyd execution. That's what it looks like to me. And I, and I, 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 I sincerely hope so. I mean, I, I didn't exactly. I hope that- so. Because it's I really, I, a high I, cost. I hope so. I don't think so, to be honest. Because oh. I've been living here for many years. Uh, these, this is not the first time that they, they've been saying we have to have a conversation about uh, yeah, uh, discrimination and things. And, I, and somebody posted something um, on LinkedIn, and I was just like, well, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> you know? I, I don't see, I, I don't see uh, black professors. Uh, yeah? uh, I don't see. And at the time, when I was applying to, be a, to do the pediatrician job, there was one black pediatrician in the whole of Netherlands. I had done my research. That's, that's because they told me I was too ethnic, right? So I started doing my research because I thought, is this true? And uh, and, and at that time, there's one 
a black uh, pediatrician. So, you know, I still don't see it. I'm sorry. Uh, and if you look at the top specialists, I'm talking about the medical field. Yeah. Um, uh, look, at, look at all the hospitals on the websites. Look at them today on the websites of every single academic hospital. Point to me one black person on, on the top or on the board of directors or uh, a specialist surgeon, point one. And then we'll have that conversation again. So people should just, you know, they should just stop talking because if they're not doing it. Um, okay. Okay. I like that. I like the, the clarity because this podcast will go around the world and people sometimes have a difficult, they have a difficult time looking at the conversation around racism, diversity, inclusivity, except from their own perspective. Absolutely. So I'm more than happy to have a full-blown perspective of a medical professional. That's a completely different perspective. We love that. The thing that sticks with me is this. What do you do with all of that uh, anxiety and the feeling of of not good enough that's put upon you? Because whatever you do with it is what the rest of us are going to have to do with it as well. That's what we need, some, some kind of tools. What could you give us? If you could think of maybe three things that you do to self-heal because you have to heal from that Wow! on the daily, I would think. Oh man, that's such a good question. That, you know, that for me, the fact that you asked me that, I'm really grateful because it's something that I also would, you know, wish that somebody had given me tools back then, you know, how do you deal with it? Yes. So back then, uh, when I realized that I would never be good enough to be, um, uh, to get into the job of, you know, uh, pediatrics, based on the way I look, because it had been told to me, and I just explained to you the journey I went through, I left the country, I left the Netherlands. I said to myself, you know what? If I'm not good enough here, let me go somewhere else where I know I am good enough. And that was the UK, I was in London. And I worked as a doctor, and I was, and I, I, I never felt more welcome in my life to, to come in. I was working, making uh, good money. I, was, I, was, I felt really appreciated, valued, you know? Um, and so I wanted to make my life in the, in the UK, and um, and I did because working there for me, it, okay, there there will be moments where you meet people who, or patients who say to you, "I don't want to be touched by you because you're black." I've had that experience, and but I kind of looked at it because that person was suffering from a psychiatric condition. Um, I've had women, uh, women who told me, um, you know, you want to say something? Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm oh, shocked. okay. Oh, right. I, oh, I'm just saying hold, it like it's normal. No, yeah. no, no. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I want to say this because whenever I listen to podcasts and people say things like what you said, I'm the person going, wait, what? Ask her. I'm asking you. Someone is saying, don't touch me because you're black in the UK? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But then you said, that's okay because the person was suffering from mental illness. But if you're so incredibly racist that even when you are suffering from mental illness, you remember to be racist, that's... Yeah extraordinary yeah, that, yeah okay you put it in perspective because me i'm there to help somebody right of course. He, he has a, he's, he's got an issue i want to help him so I'll, i mean i'll never forget this and i even wrote a book about my experiences as a as an A&E doctor and uh, that particular story is in, is in that little um uh, book it's, it's kind of like a par- you know like a making some fun and comedy of what i went through but he actually did he said you know i don't want you to touch me because you're black and uh and I, I can't remember exactly the thing, but I do know that the, the nurses really were very supportive. And they basically came in there and said, look, she's the doctor here. She's the one in charge. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to get any help, then you, you can leave. 
Um, so I, I was even shocked. I was thinking, no, please, let's let's help the guy. You know, I don't want to lose my job because I, you know, I sent somebody away. But they were quite supportive and said, no, 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 we, we do not tolerate this kind of uh, behavior. And and then to follow up on that, I was working at another hospital, and there was a lady screaming and screaming, making so much havoc in the, in the department. And uh, I went in the room and I said, you know, excuse me, can you please be a bit quiet? You know, we have really sick patients here and your, your, your turn is next. I'm coming now to see you. And she basically uh, said, get out of here. Don't come near me. Go back to, uh, you know, Pakistan. And I was like, oh, well, Pakistan, do you, did you even do your geography? Because I don't look like you I don't. Pakistan. <laughs> and, uh, and so she was so uh, racist uh, and, uh, and quite, you know, aggressive verbally towards me that the police who had escorted her in, take her, took her away. They actually said, uh, I'm sorry, doctor, but we're taking her to the cell. When she comes down, then we can bring her here. And I felt really bad. I'm like, no, but I want to help her because something's wrong. He, they're like, no, uh, we're not. So what? a few months later, I got a letter from the court saying that uh, a, a, a police, the police officer had pressed charges against her for being uh, a racist, for being discriminatory towards me. I didn't even know this. I didn't even. I didn't even go to court. I didn't have to tell my story. But somebody else stood for up for me, and she had to do about three hundred hours of community services. So it's it's quite interesting how um, that is so complicated. That's so complicated, isn't it? Yeah, tremendously complicated on it all is. on all levels. This whole invented philosophy of racism that gets used against you and then other people are fighting for you and you're saying I just want to help her and I just I can't I'm thinking okay so you're thinking you're a young woman you are you're talented more than talented you say I'm going to go where I'm celebrated not where I'm tolerated yeah, I'm needed, yeah. yeah okay so you go to the UK and then all these things are happening but now you're back here. If it was going that well, why would you come back here? You know what it's like here. Can you explain that or you'd rather not or? No, I will. I, I need to tell this because okay. so I was in the UK. Okay. Of course you have these experiences, but mm-hmm. I was still, I, I could apply to jobs and I would be interviewed and I would get the jobs that I wanted. So in the UK, typically the job that I applied for, I would get that. And what I like about the UK, uh, to a certain extent, they have this, you know, their policies about, you know, I hate to say positive discrimination. They do want to have a much more diverse, you know, uh, team. And a doctor who has the talent is a doctor who can work, and that's basically it, right? Okay. okay. And then they do go through some, you know, there's a scrutiny. You have to do exams. You pass it. So there's a way of actually, um, 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 you know, evaluating your talent, your skills, and your knowledge. So if you get good grades and you pass the exam, you move forward. And I like that, right? Sure. So what happened was that um, like meritocracy is what you're thinking. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, the referendum came up, okay. and then uh, they voted Brexit. Okay. And I swear to you, the moment they vo- I'll never forget it. I the, the, the referendum came up, they voted. The next day I went to work, I felt like an outsider. I felt like I, I, can't, I, I cannot walk safely in the street. It, there was such a tone now of like, hey, now that we voted Brexit, we can now do and say what we feel and act the way we feel. And frankly, you're not welcome. I felt it immediately, and that that when they voted Brexit, six months later, I was out. I had to leave. I did not feel safe anymore in the country that I thought was the place that I could go to and always feel welcome. I do not feel welcome there, and I do not feel safe there. I so, go back. did you feel uncomfortable in your workspace or on the streets getting to your workplace? It was on the streets. It was definitely on the streets. Yeah. 
there's a shift in the culture, that much of a shift. A shift in, yeah, it was the, and then you, I started listening to the attacks, you know, there were now, because people can be, you know, pretty much like, oh, now, now that we've voted Brexit, people know that we don't want you here. And it became now like, we don't want you in our country. You know, okay. you are invading our space. It's ours. And I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> I've lived possibly more, more, if I look in, the, in terms of years, I've probably spent more years in the UK than I have in, in, in physically, than in the Netherlands or in the States. So, uh, the only reason is that I moved back and forth. But throughout my youth, I was I was there since I was a young girl. I was about four or five. Lived there to about twelve. Came there, you know. So the UK was for me my my home, and so I, you know, and, and it's in English. I didn't, you know, I could just speak English, and I was happy. Right. Um, and uh, and I could get so many things done. I, I experienced so many so much stuff. I could start my business there. I can you know make connections. It was a great place to grow as a woman, even as a black woman, to start your business and not have to worry about not getting further. But then Brexit happened, and I just didn't feel safe. And I said, there's no way I'm going to raise my child here. So I moved back to the Netherlands. Okay. I, I, want, I want to say two things. Um, what's, a, what's amazing about your story is I was having a conversation with a colleague two days ago. And this is a European Dutch male. And he was saying to me, well, you know, all these things that are going on right now in the world, I'm always telling the students that only art and creativity can fix it and not politicians. And I haven't had the chance to tell him this yet, but I'm going to tell him this. You just brought it home. Politics underscores, gives a framework to a sense of boldness that people have. And what's in their heart can actually come out. And it's um, they can act with impunity. So you need all of it. You need the art, the yeah. science. Yeah. You need yeah. the politics. You need all of it to work together yeah. to hold what I consider to be the actual nature of the human being yeah. in its yeah. place. Yeah. I don't need you to love me, but it's not okay if you hang me from trees and yeah. execute me in the public school. None of that's yeah. okay. Only yeah. laws can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your story is proof of that. Something got let loose, apparently, I guess, in, in the psyche of the, the people in, in the UK. And it came out, and you felt it. But it's, it's very similar to what got loose in the, in the United States. All of a sudden, they voted for Trump. Yes, huh? yes. Who's completely, who's being extremely verbal, vocalizing what he wants to do with immigrants, physically doing it. I mean, the kind of, uh, you know, human rights violations that this one person has committed in his term. I, I mean, I, I, again, I'm shocked. But... Because he opened it and he made it taller, you know, people could tolerate that. Yes. And then a lot of people just bit their tongue and said nothing. But it also left an opening for other um, views to come out. And then you really understand, hey, this is where uh, the problem is. And yeah. you think that America's tolerant? Um, maybe it isn't, actually. Um, so I do, I do fear. I have family in America and I'm, I'm scared for them, to be honest. I'm scared for my dad. I see what happened the way that... Um, you know, Mr. Brooks was uh, killed by uh, by police officers sleeping in his car. Yeah. Um, he might have been drunk and he maybe did the right thing by sleeping in his car to sober up. That would that would be what I think the right thing to do. If uh, if I had a medical, if I was in a situation where I had to advise a drunk person and he called me, I need to get home. I would say, sleep in your car, sober up, go. You know, in the morning. Yeah. And then he said he's woken up by police officers, and uh, whatever scuffles happens. Uh, he runs away. Yes, he turns back, um, fires with a taser gun, and then they kill him. Whilst at the same time, police officers are saying that taser guns are non-lethal. So if they knew he had a taser gun and it was not lethal, 
why do they lethally kill him? Or, or you know, why do they, you know, inflict lethal ways to put him down? So I think that um, this is going to cause a lot of, again, anxiety in people because it means that can they be safe outdoors? What do you do if you're drunk and you want to sober up? You can't go into public places anymore. Toilets are now no longer open for the public because of corona. Right, right. So what options do you have? You can't even sit on the sidewalk as a black person because somebody will call the police and say, there's a black person sitting on the sidewalk. Exactly. Um, so the only safety you have is in your car, but that, even that is not good enough. So it means that as a black person in a country like America, how anxious are you just to get out of your house moving forward? Huh? Right, right. This is what I'm talking to you about. And it's... um. I think now the rest of the world knows what the citizens of the United States know who are coming yeah, from this is what Africa. They look on a daily basis. Exactly. Yeah. This is us on a daily basis. And again, it's become so extreme and politically sanctioned. I don't know where we go from here. I don't. But what my concern is is how do I what do I say to the people? What can we say to the African Americans, to the people in the diaspora? what to do to reduce the anxiety what can we do if we could just yeah. give some kind of tools because we're all dealing yeah. with it yeah you know you asked me that already so you asked me three tools so one thing one tool that i did then was to move out remember i said okay yeah. i want to be here okay but that doesn't that doesn't solve the problem as i told you it didn't solve my problem right correct I still face a discrimination uh regardless sure. the second tool that i have is that um there's there's ways to let these things be known and remember in the beginning i said that Part of history is telling, talking about it. Part of your, part of keeping something alive and change is to document it. If I count, if I tell you how many times I've told my patients, you know, who come to me with a headache or a stomachache, I always say, you know what? I believe that you have a headache. I believe you have a stomachache. But right now, I don't know where it is. Why don't you take this piece of paper and for the next week, document your stomachache for me, okay? All I need for you to tell me the score. Was it an 8, a 9, a 10, a 5? Tell me what time it happened. What did you do? Did you take medication? Just for give me a documentation so that I can understand your headache, so I can understand your tummy ache. It helps me help you. Because if I now just start pumping you with medication, I might I might completely lose sight of what's really going on. Yes. This is what I tell periodically to a lot of my uh, patients. And I mean, and they, you, you should ask them. They're like, yeah, oh yeah, she's a doctor who always gives me a diary to fill, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I'm always telling them, fill a diary. Um, and I think that that will be the second tool, I would say, document what you are experiencing. Keep tabs of it, because we can only root, go get to the root cause of the systemic problem. Yes. We can only get to the root cause of what COVID is if we document our symptoms, if we document our experiences, so that we can say to the doctor, you know what, Five, two weeks ago, I was feeling short of breath. You told me it's definitely not COVID. But now in the last two weeks, I've had on this day, I had fever. On that day, I was coughing on this. What can it be? Let's test me so that we know what is COVID and what's going on. So number, my, 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 my main goal would be to really let, let us document things. I do that with my daughter. Typically at the end of the day, we go through our day. And then when she's going to sleep, I usually give her a bedside, I tell her bedtime uh, uh, story. Yeah. And usually it's like a more like fairy tale version of the, our day. So that she has a way to document the things that we've gone through in a much more obviously childlike way, but it's so important to repeat what we've gone through because it, it it gets forgotten, okay. and that's what's happening with the Black history. It's getting forgotten, or it's getting completely put up by somebody else documenting it, and then they get their version, and which is completely not true. 
So that would be the uh, tool, uh, the second tip would be to document. Okay. And I think by documenting things, your anxiety levels comes down because you're actually saying later when I show to somebody, they will see it and then they will understand and they will read it and say, oh, so that's what you went through. Oh, now I get it. Um, and I do this in my professional life. I'm always taking notes when I'm having meetings because I don't want somebody else to say, well, you said this. I'm like, no, I took the notes. Uh, this is what happened. Um, so it's a good way also to, to understand, you know, what's going on on a day-to-day basis. Okay. I think for me, the third tool, uh, which for me, I think, one that I think I know is the most important is to really take care of your mental and physical health by doing the right things for you. Um, if, if you feel like you can take a walk for 25 minutes in a day, get that fresh air, um, get just a few hour, uh, minutes in exercising, um, you know, go out and dance, uh, listen to music, um, give yourself whatever it is that you need to kind of get that frustration out. And I think you need to embrace that and take that as it is every single day um, because it's important to also realize that as we are all humans and we, everybody, it's a cliche, we make mistakes, but one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we forget that we are humans and that we need to have time for ourselves. That is a beautiful place to end. And I, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast. I think that when you hear this story back, you will hear how powerful you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. Phenomenal woman, honestly. Dr. Fonderson, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and we will speak soon, okay? Thank you. I hope to speak to you soon because maybe we should do a total reverse. I interview you. (laughs) I'm very excited to see what you're doing. Uh, I'm following you and I think it's amazing how you using art, how you're using the power of expression to get these things out there. And one of the things I like about what you're doing is that you're doing the podcast for us to listen to, but you're always integrating that with, you know, the way that people use art. And we forget about that. Black art history is something that, unfortunately, I don't know much about. And maybe I need to get into that more often and, and tell a story like this to my child so that she gets involved. Because it's, um, again, it's part about telling the history and telling people what they're doing. So I'm I'm really happy with what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. And I think um, I will say this to you. I'm looking at your three points, the the concept of going where you are celebrated versus where you're tolerated. And number two, documenting and debriefing your experiences to help control the narrative. For example, the diary. And the third thing, taking care of your mental and physical health. I would add a spiritual element to that if I could, whatever that looks like to you. And I, I so appreciate what you've said about the work I'm doing because I do think that controlling the narrative and using art in society is a way that we heal ourselves naturally as people yeah. of the diaspora. That's what Absolutely. I've seen. Absolutely. And we, unfortunately, with COVID, uh, that's my last point, a lot of these things like museum, arts, you know, dance, uh, theaters, when they closed down, it, it, it shook a lot of people because that's, that's their outlet, huh? Yes. That's their of expressing themselves and if we do not have a way to express themselves ourselves that's when our story dies and that's why it's very important exactly exactly thank you so much dr fonderson you're welcome have a great evening mona take care you as well thank you bye bye i'm on another level i'm on another level Another level, this fire that I spit, got me wrestling the devil. I'm on another level.
ETA got me paid now, nah. and I'm at my maximum potential. No more minimum wage now. Nah. My whole flow a grenade now. Nah. Every bar that I spit cut sharp like a blade now. Nah. Lost bras give me play now. Nah. Full of thirst, I don't hit them, I just surf from the wave now. Nah. I've been working like a slave now. Nah. My partners catching plays cause they tired of looking for a way out. My mama see me on the stage now. Nah. A long way from the days when I laid on that base guy. They get high and all played out. So my homies who know me, we about to be global. From the hood, but can't stay out. I keep OGs with me half the time like T-Mobile. I ain't really hella social. My supporters, they know how I move cause they follow. Turn my circle to an O. Cause some boys like four quarters, they change for a dollar. Holler. Young black and a scholar. Probably could've went to Oxford. They tryna kick it like soccer. My mama still tryna get me to be a doctor. I told the king, I'm on another level. In my draw, oh. The OG J Slim did a bit cause he clapped at the laws. True. But from where I'm from, we hear claps like it's round of applause. Oh, bars 3D like the Dudleys. I keep it real. For sure. My cousin say he bloody and keep the steel. I offended little buddy. I said be for real. Tell me one gangster that you know live with his auntie still. <laughs> Boy, you tripping on maps like the blood out your mouth. If you say big and back being bull. One more time, you ain't trapping, you trapped every case. Bird don't sing, some of them just the death. Boy, God. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. This fire that I spit got me wrestling the devil. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. I'm on another level. This fire that I spit got me wrestling the devil. 